0: All right, everybody welcome to the Houston Ensemble Podcast, episode 16. We've got with us the great Omar Lissandro of Houston, Texas. Omar is a great friend of ours. We met him through basically just playing music throughout the city. Uh, Omar is an extreme supporter of live music here in Houston, and we're super thankful for that, and wow. we're glad you're here. So Thank you very much Ryan. Thanks for coming. I
1: messaged I messaged them in like a post. I was like, let's do a podcast, and it was like, really? I'm like, yeah.
0: Yeah, because I, I was like,
2: me? <laughs> I was like, okay. I'm like, yeah, really. <laughs> um,
1: no, because, you know, the thing is is uh, we're actually trying to highlight people that we think in Houston are doing something important and are making a difference, and the fact that – you also support live music, you know, and you've come to like so many of our shows. So Thank it's you. like, you know. well, I mean, I
2: work for artists. That's my job. I mean, right. I'm a costume designer, and the majority of my clients, unlike a lot of people that are costume designers and stylists, are not like magazines and editorials. They're people's tours and album covers. I mean, you see more of my work on Spotify than you would mm-hmm. invoke. Does that make sense? Yeah. Yeah. Um, because I appreciate artists and I appreciate the world of style Mm -hmm. and I like the importance of being able to properly marry an artist with that Mm. instead of in the thing where artists feel like they have to become other people because some label you know some record label is putting them together with somebody who's just going to throw cool things at them Mm
0: -hmm. you know yeah. for people who are just kind of tuning in who are just watching the video would you mind talking about a little background i always like to start off with like a little background about the person and then you can elaborate on what you were just saying get a little more specific about what you do here in houston
2: yeah so uh again i'm almost sandra i'm based here in houston texas i've been a wardrobe stylist and costume designer for almost 10 years now I, like i said i primarily work with artists doing tour stuff i have done editorials i had a publication called Straight It up and a uh, fashion group for five years um, and worked on the Gay Pride Rock the Runway show for three years and Houston Vintage for four years um, and I've gotten to work with a lot of really cool uh, amazing amazing artists on a lot of different things so um, yeah you know people like the Suffers and Crown Ben and Leon Bridges and uh, to whom it may and just a bunch of different people um, I grew up in D.C., I guess, for background. Mm -hmm. My mom is from Ecuador. Her parents are Italian and Portuguese. My dad, who I didn't know very well, but from what I know, he was French by way of the British Virgin Islands. Mm -hmm. So, um, that's why I have such an odd name (laughs) (laughs) for
1: being a giant black dude. What is a day working on Mm -hmm. an artist's tour, look like um it's
2: a little frantic and intensive it's the first time we've worked together because you don't know a lot of a lot of artists come in there when you talk about wardrobe right they come in already with this like hands up like look man don't change me i'm rock and roll i don't want to freaking wear gucci i don't want to like be waking make you know i don't want to wear makeup like you know they go in there because a lot of Costume designers and wardrobe stylists have never actually played music. I played music for 10 years of my life. The only, the two biggest tattoos on my body are music tattoos. Mm. Um, and so I understand things like you can't ask a guitar player, you know, or a bass player to wear a heavily padded jacket because it messes with the strap. You can't ask a drummer to wear something that's too fitted because he needs reach for being able to maneuver his kit. You know what I mean? And they get really hot. And so you just have to think about all that stuff. And so um, they don't know that. And as much as you tell them that, they still are like, no way, because that's been the general Mm -hmm. experience. Um, So a little bit frantic because sometimes they want something specific and you just have to make that happen within the realities of their size or budget or aesthetic. Um, but a lot of it is just sourcing things and running the shops and making phone calls and checking your email and begging people to be like, please, going on tour in a week, can you just make this or modify it or ship this fast? Um, going back with the artists and saying, I can't get that in green. Can I? Can we do blue? Do you like pink? Um, and that's really it. And, and then trying to make it all make sense and pack it. and label it and number it so that they know how to wear it (laughs) and make sure it's machine washable so that they don't have to try to figure out how to dry clean something on the road um
1: they get to keep their 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 costumes
2: for the most part if we do music videos a lot of stuff is on loan um in combination with stuff that they have if it's on tour they usually purchase stuff
1: they purchase it
2: yeah unless it's like bigger artists like krong ben uh, or Leon Bridges, where stuff will be shipped in via mm-hmm. either myself or like a their touring stylist. Mm-hmm. Um, and they'll ship stuff in, their wall stuff, and then send it back. So it just really depends on what the production
0: wants. And that's cool because that's what I saw recently, maybe a couple of weeks ago. Mm-hmm. You were doing a photo shoot with Krangben and Leon and Bridges, Leon Bridges yeah. who Armin and I both love.
2: They're amazing people. I mean, I was honestly nervous about working with Leon just because of the fact that I really like live by the adage, don't meet your heroes. And mm-hmm. he was, he, the interesting thing, if I can share this, that was about him, is his whole demeanor reminds you of what it would have been like to meet a Motown artist in the era of early Motown. Whoa. Like if you were sitting in Detroit at the Motown studios and you went to go grab lunch with one of the guys, James Jamerson, any who's I'm a huge fan of, or any of the Even Session guys, uh, it reminds you of what it would have been like to have lunch with them because he's not a quiet person, but he's a person of very choice words. Oh, you know, interesting. Okay. he doesn't, he's, he'll talk to you, but he's not just going to word vomit. He's uh, really gonna be very
1: like wh- like what?
2: engaged mm-hmm. and interesting in the way that he's gonna say something or, or respond to something. And yeah. it's not just going to be like, yeah, yeah, that's great. He's going to be more like, yeah, man, I thought about that a lot and oh. referenced something and very soft spoken. I mean, a Dubai. nice guy. Yeah, just a nice guy, man. He and the Krung Band. I mean, this is the third time that I've gotten to work with him so far this well, 2020 in the last year. Mm-hmm. And they're just.
0: Where was that photo shoot at that I saw? Oh, okay, cool. Oh (laughs) Oh.
2: (laughs) Bohemian (laughs) Grove. No, it was in a – I can't tell you where because I don't honestly know. It was in a field in in East End somewhere that the photographer who had found. Yeah, there was like a field behind some townhouses. And uh, it's hilarious. So like Laura Lee from Crongman likes to wear a lot of the crazy, funky platforms. So we get her in this dress. We get them all dressed. We jump in the car from the studio that we were originally shooting at, which was like a mile or two away. Jump in the car. Here I am riding with Leon Bridges (laughs) and my assistant, who's driving, you know, to this field, um, which is already kind of odd. You know what I mean? And so we're driving to this field. We get to this field. And then the photographer is like, it's all that wheat grass or dry whatever. I don't even know what kind of grass that is. But it's all that grass that you saw in the photo. And so it's just like all of that for as far as you can see. And so the photographer is like, okay. So I walked out in the middle. And we're going to take photos there. So here I am. Walking with Lorelee on one side, holding her up because she's, you know, that stuff is soft because it has been raining for like three days. Oh, and yeah. so it's all this soft mud. I'm the heaviest person there. <laughs> I'm obviously not wearing... Mud-clogging shoes. So I'm trying to hold her up uh-huh. while she's walking in platforms, not fall myself, while Leon Bridges with these beautiful blue boots is trying not to, like, slap in the slosh. Oh, man. <laughs> and the photographer is trying not to fall either because it would be like you take two good steps and then your foot would go through because it'd be soft there. It's hilarious. And then all that while these workers are, like, working on this one of the townhouses, and you can hear them dropping stuff and talking. And I speak Spanish. So I could hear what they were saying. And they're like, dang, what's going on over there? Bro, look at that chick. No. And so I'm hearing all this, uh-huh. and then there's people uh-huh. in the background that are coming out of their houses. And I was like, this must, this must be what Hollywood feels like sometimes. Uh, yeah. It feels kind of ridiculous. <laughs> but they got good photos out of it, and nobody fell. Was, oh my God, yeah I was worried I was like it's gonna be me. I know it uh, it's gonna be me. they're gonna catch it on camera, and i'm gonna be I'm gonna be a meme forever.
1: It's not bad to be a meme oh.
0: it's you know you, this, you is totally, at that point. this is totally this is totally a side <laughs> note, but speaking of being a meme yeah. when I was in high school, I took a a picture or I didn't take a picture, sorry, I was in the orchestra yeah. rehearsal room and we had a little break and i put my bass case down and it's kind of common among upright bass players to kind of use the case as a pad to sleep on right and so i went inside the case and my feet were hanging out and fell asleep and somebody took a picture and i saw it like months later and it was on every bass magazine channel like (laughs) social media it's like and the meme was like no, I don't even know. Some bass player I mean, but it got th- like hundreds of thousands of like That's re re whatever's on Reddit and all the websites were posting. I'm it. like, why am I not getting any royalties for that? Thank you. And that- I don't know even who took the picture. Still.
2: Welcome to the I think welcome to what makes this time and this generation of people very interesting. And what it's also been, in my opinion, the source of a lot of conflict is that we live in a world of um, context without substance. Oh, does that make sense? Mm-hmm. So it's like, you know, back in the olden, they say, let's say the 1970s or 80s. If you had a lot of money, there were a certain set of things that were accessible to you and just you. And I'm not talking private jets or things like that. Right. I'm talking. I'm talking. You know great clothing certain restaurants certain types of cars um certain vacation places um and nowadays a lot of that stuff is accessible to everybody and so it becomes commonplace and because it becomes commonplace then it stops becoming interesting or special so i feel like a lot of people are trying to chase the next big thing and figure out what the next big thing is but there aren't a lot of next big things in the reality of Life, Mm. So they make up things and they make hype out of things that would otherwise be mundane to be able to create the next big thing
1: that I'll tell you what makes a lot of sense. The next big thing is you're jacked in on the corner of your room. You're in this amazing virtually simulated world you're putting on any costume you want, any bodysuit you want, you have any voice you want, and you're doing whatever you mm-hmm. want to do.
2: You know, if it wasn't for the fact that the powers that be yeah. are all motivated by profit, I would believe that's absolutely possible. I don't actually it would be not po- not not possible, but accessible. I'm sure there's some people that could afford to do that. Yeah. But You know, everything comes down to a dollar sign and you Mm -hmm. have, and it's not money because I'm not going to blame money because money is not necessarily an evil thing. It's the pursuit of profit, which is very different than money. Because if somebody gave you $500, they gave you $500, right? But in you trying to make $500 by profiting on something, that is a whole nother attitude. You know. Right. That's that's what changes the situation. Yeah. Um, and so that in combination with people not understanding their own powers these days, you know, it's like, oh, man, I got likes and follows. But then who makes money on that stuff? Right. So Somebody took your photo without your permission. You know, it got shared a thousand different ways. Nobody even got credited at the very least. So right. <laughs> even if that photo got shared right now and you didn't tell me that story, I would have no idea it was you. Of course. And there it is. And somebody made money off it. Somebody got a click or a view or a like or anything like that. But, uh, you know, people just can't seem to understand that their most valuable asset right now is their buying power and their information.
0: Mm. Mm-hmm. Wow.
2: People don't get that. That's why I don't believe in free. That's one thing that my mom taught me because she came here on a diplomatic visa in the early 70s. And she came from a very, 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 very poor and um, chaotic background. And so the one thing that she really was good at is surrounding herself by intelligent people. And they taught her early on, nothing in this country is free. Even my dad was of that belief. It comes from somewhere. If somebody, if I hand you $5, I worked for it. It's free to you, but somebody pays for it. And so whenever you sign up, oh, we'll give you 10% off, you know, or free shipping, it's because they want something from you. And if people were more careful about that, Mm. it would just change the way that everybody perceives things. One of the biggest things about me that most people don't know, unless you know me, is that everything that I do, as far as where I spend my money, as far as where I try to spend my time and support, is all local. It's why local music is such an important part of that. Mm. Um, I've been to more local shows than tours ever. Um, and not because I don't support bigger artists. Some of my favorite artists you know, of all time, Nora Jones, Madeline Peru, uh, Stevie Wonder, Jamie Cullum. Um, are all bigger artists, right? And more mainstream. I'm not going to punish them for having success because I think that's silly. Um, But if I can also do my part by supporting local business, I think that's what is important. Um, I spend a lot of time looking at the past because I'm really fascinated by anthropology Mm. and trends and historical things. And so I, I end up... As a byproduct of that, watching a lot of older shows or watching interviews uh, of people, older interviews. And because news and before the internet was so much less accessible, um, people were a lot more precise about what they would say in interviews because you only had this opportunity to say this once, you didn't have like a social media that you could go go home in in 1978 and talk about how this tour was right. It would have to go through the channel of a publication or the channel of something, and get released. And so, a lot of the times, a lot of the really most interesting stories come from these orally interviews, early publications. Interesting. And for me, I look at a lot of that stuff, and it helps me bring context to something that I might be dealing with in the present you know because as a triple minority in what was Trump's America um it's interesting to now see what people it's interesting for people to now see what I experienced on an everyday basis um and not necessarily bad things but It's more in my case micro things because as a well dressed black man Mm -hmm. who is well spoken, um, you know, it gives me a whole set of privileges because I'm more of a friendly, palatable black guy. Like this is a black friend that you can take to like meet your parents and stuff, and you won't have these cultural divides because what does he know about the black existence? You know, he's probably like a yuppie and doesn't know and. You know, he's more us than them. And I'm like, well, what does that even mean? Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm like, if the cops pull me over, I'm like, it's not really going to matter. You know, if I'm at a party and there's like gunshots and the cops get called, they're not going to be like, oh, wait, no, 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 no. That guy in the vintage Armani. No, no, no. Surely he cannot be, you know, up to any nefarious activity. So, Mm -hmm. no, no, don't don't hurt him. But, you know, it just doesn't make any sense. And so now people realizing like man it is very different for different people Um, it's kind of a wake up call but it's funny that even in that instead of people responding by going okay let's look within ourselves to figure out how we can actually change things and re-narrate the way that we live Mm -hmm. they do the opposite and they look outward um, trying to go and like you know, scream and yell instead of being like, it just takes, it takes you. Um, you know, Montrose has changed a lot since I've I've been here. I've been hanging out in Montrose since like 1997. Yeah. And I remember back when avant garde was Helios, <laughs> you know, it was just such a different place. Um, and not because Mariana changed it or anything, but it's like this, the social consciousness changes. And so that makes everything change along with it. hmm And a lot of my earliest memories were just hanging out at Helios Translate, you know, transitioning into Avant Garden and like the very mid 2000s with like Cam Franklin, you know, and Joffrey Mueller. And one of my favorite memories of Joffrey is me and him on my roads did this like, you know, weird banjo you know trade-off thing where he would play some licks and I would mimic those licks, and we went back and forth and we're getting faster and faster and and that's how we kind of became friends because he's like yeah man you can hang on and I was like that's pretty cool I didn't know that you could do that in a banjo
0: and I totally forgot to mention that you are a musician as well
2: once was man, I know. Yeah, back in the olden days. I remember I learned back that before you kids <laughs> came around. I remember <laughs> I
0: learned that at your birthday party.
2: Yeah, no, I did. I played for ten years, man. I got to play at Fitzgeralds and um, Rudyard's, and I opened for a lot of really cool people. And
0: um, did you did you go to university or anything like that?
2: No, it was a byproduct of growing up in a house with a crazy mom and needing an outlet
0: see that I mean, that's good. that just shows like even to this day, you can do what you want to do, yeah, if you put your mind to it,
1: when you got pressure, you get diamonds. you know yeah, yeah,
0: I mean, I
2: mean, think about you know, we always look at success from the end of the byproduct, right? Mm-hmm. but we don't ever look at the story of how that got there and mm-hmm. some of the things that people experience to get there mm-hmm. um, and that's what makes sometimes some of the most amazing music and times is that music has always been this thing where I've almost treated it as a form of its own Bible. And if you listen to songs and listen to what people are talking about, you can hear that we've been having the same freaking conversations Mm. for the last hundred years. You know, it's like, you know, when the whole early early part of the Black Lives Matter movement came on. You know, I'm like listening to all of the early Curtis Mayfield, late Motown. And it's like they are just like, come on, like we're still it's it's like that song is is more relevant now than it was, you know, 50 years ago. Mm -hmm. And it's because. We as people haven't fully understood how to be people.
1: Mm. We don't remember. We don't remember real good either. No, but that's because we get distracted, and yeah. that's
2: the dangerous part of the internet is that we get distracted. We get distracted, and so, you know, a long time ago, if a business was not doing good business, you know, let's say you went to the meat market and you'd always kind of like you know shiv you on the on the percentages or whatever or on what you got, people would stop going there, and you got a business. There was no. Tolerance for that. And now, well, you know, because I have a social media platform, I have an opinion. And because I, I have that opinion and I have 2,000 friends, that means it has some validity. And because it has some validity, that means it's set in stone. And it's like, no, no, it's not. Wrong is wrong, right is right. And that's what it is. Is there forgiveness in that and redemption? Absolutely. Because not every absolute is absolute other than death as we know it and life as we know it. And it begins and ends yeah. there. And so I think. For me myself, that's how I've been able to survive all of these times, being thirty six. You know, I remember, you know when we were talking about there was a whole rash of gay bashing in Montrose. I mean, it's always been that, but it was really, really prevalent like four years ago, and people were talking about, I got these private messages from some friends, right? And it was kind of in conjunction with one of the first. I think it was trey Trayvon's murder. Um, and I got the message from some friends and they were like, oh, I'm so sorry about what's going on. I feel so bad. I feel so bad for my privilege. And I was like, what are you talking about?
1: Mm-hmm. I'm like, have you
2: ever had a bias towards anybody you've been friends with or with me? And I like, if that was the case, I wouldn't be friends with you regardless of how nice you were. Because I can read through that because I've been taught, you know, how to be a bit more perceptive than taking things for face value. And I was like, well, even that same vein, then where were you, me as an early gay kid, you know, in 1998 when these guys from Memorial and Spring would come out in their Bronco and they'd have Louisville Sluggers and they'd go beat the fag out of you. And so we all had to leave the support group that was like hidden in the church in Montrose in groups because if they got you, man, there was no going on live and seeing the last moments of your life. You were just gone. That's it. You're just just gone. There's no cameras everywhere. There's nobody hanging out outside on their phone. You know, there was just it was just a different era of of like wild, wild west because you left your house and you left your house, Mm -hmm. (laughs) you know. And I was like, well, where were you then when that was going on? I'm like, you weren't there. I had to take care of myself. And just as I did then, I will continue to do so because you have to have your own best interest at heart. First yeah and foremost,
0: wow, and okay, so you you were talking about these people that would come out in their bronco mm-hmm. and where was that?
2: This was in Montrose
0: in Montrose, yeah, this is
2: in Montrose proper because the church was I used to go to a place called Hatch, and Hatch was like a support group for like gay and bisexual teens uh-huh. because this is again pre internet so right, yeah, it's not like you could get on a chat and be like, hey, you know, we're here. It's okay. You know, just stick it through. So we I uh, used to go there. I can't remember what day it was. I think it was like Thursdays or Fridays. And so you'd leave there and it was a thing. It was a thing that they somehow got wind of it because it wasn't public, but it wasn't hidden if you knew how to like look and you pretended that you were gay and ask somebody, you know, the right set of people. Of course, they're going to tell you. Um, we know where their support group is. And so they would go and like hide out and you'd be walking back, you know, through Montrose and they'd roll up and I mean, to be three or four guys with like Louisville sluggers oh. and they would chase you down. And if they caught you, man, they just beat you within an inch of your life.
0: That is so crazy. Yeah. That's really sad. I saw a picture from an article, actually that Minerva mm-hmm. Mariana's daughter posted the other day. I didn't read the article cause I don't know. I'm not as connected to Houston slash Montrose as a lot of other people, but I saw the picture of Montrose and where that barbershop cut loose Mm -hmm. is right across from Agora that Mm -hmm. was in the picture, but Mm -hmm. it was from like the eighties or something. And there was a whole parade and I was like, wow, these people look also like the people who are there now. Yeah. Like kind of that same vibe. And I've heard of, uh, even Joey Diaz, this comedian, Mm -hmm. uh, when he came and did a show in Houston, he was like, oh, man, I remember back in the day when we were in Montrose and the the Gorilla Biscuits, and we were getting crate, and I was like, wow, It was a different –
2: I caught the tail end of it. But even so, it was – you couldn't trade those memories for the world, man. Going out to Pride, and uh, it was just all jam-packed in the Montrose off of Westheimer, Uh and they were like (laughs) – quarter million people there and I mean you could barely walk through but it was just it was a good time because everybody was there and everybody was present you know nobody was on their phone trying to record it on live and making videos about it and updating their life everybody was just there in that moment Mm. and I think again as the way that I look at things through the lens of trends and style and anthropology It's helped me kind of just understand the world better because I have a mental health condition called borderline personality disorder, which is a byproduct of just having a really traumatic childhood. And so because of that, um, I have a hard time sometimes relating to people because just sometimes social norms just don't make sense to me because I'm just very kind of a matter of fact about things. Cause a lot of things emotionally for me feel very Jekyll and Hyde, mm-hmm. you know, even the smallest mundane things. And so I'm always having to kind of do self checks about where I am, uh, relative to what's going on and make sure that I'm not, you know, overreacting over something silly because my emotional affect is just begging me to do so. But, um, and that said, you know, I just remember being there, man. I remember that this was a place where you see people that you never get to see. Because, again, this is, you know, early internet even so. It just wasn't the same thing because you just didn't think to look up things. You know, you kind of used it as, like, an informational thing. If you had an AIM or a Yahoo or whatever, you kind of chat and make plans. But, um it was very special that you just see the types of people that you never get to see. And they were authentically themselves. Yeah. And the thing that I think why this generation has been so fascinated by looking at the 80s and the 90s and the 70s is that they recognize that they were gypped. You mm. know? I feel like you guys as 20-something-year-olds now were gypped because the internet and the commercialism that came with that took away your individuality. You know, when you see something from the 90s, whether it be a car or even a trend that's not even like an obvious trend, but something just like a jacket could be a black jacket. Most people will recognize that as something different because the aesthetic that was then was very specific to the decade and are all byproducts of people pushing ideas. You know, Mm. so like I had a rock band that I worked with um, that fought me on this video because we're going to do this crazy cool concept where they were at the post office, you know, in the middle with these cool lights. And they just like, oh, we just wear black you know, shirts all the time. And I'm like, well, you can't do that in a video. I'm like, this video is going to have this color grading and it's going to just be centered around you. They're not a lot of other cuts. It's going to look flat and they couldn't just get the concept because it's like. To make people on a TV show look normal, that takes a calculated amount of – how do I say it? It it takes work to make somebody look even. Does that make it's sense? kind of
0: like stage makeup. Yeah, kind of, sort of. Yeah,
2: exactly. Which you don't see it, but it's there it's and like it makes everybody look balanced. Because, yeah. you know, from the moment that you're born, if you've ever read a book or watch a show, even if nobody ever told you how to dress or anything it's already been you've already been trained and taught to have a perception on how people look mm. because they've created these archetypes in the cartoons that show you okay here's these five kids one of them is wearing glasses and obviously has freckles who's that that's the nerdy and the smart character one of them is wearing black or wearing leather or has his like denim jacket and it's kind of torn he has a backward hat and you're like oh that's the bad kid or the adventurous kid and so as kids you might not recognize what they're trying to tell you but by their actions in contrast to what you learn in life, it teaches you, oh, okay, that's who that narrative is. And so no matter what happens from that moment forward, your subconscious is going to interpret that as what that is. Mm. And so that's why I've always come back to the fact that personal style is so absolutely important, and not for anybody else, but because it teaches you what some of those early narratives are Mm-hmm. that maybe you've heard from people or that you were led to believe that sometimes you bury and you forget. And it, it helps you understand yourself in a way that you don't know because it raises questions where somebody I was like, hey, let's go shopping and we go and I'm like, cool. What about this pink button down? And you're like, uh, I don't like pink, you know, and we leave it at that. But maybe you go home and you try to understand like, well I'm an open person, you know, mm-hmm. I, I really don't live with uh restriction of any inhibitions why was pink such a bothersome thing and then you might remember like oh i remember this person that used to bully me wore pink or you remember that pink represents something that you don't like um other than it just maybe you just don't like it because that's your taste but um sometimes people won't realize how many of those narratives that we carry every day i'll tell you one and
1: i think it's kind of i'm
0: gonna go to the bathroom real quick y'all keep talking
1: oh I'm going to tell you one uh, version of that that I th- think is what you're talking about. And it has to do more with uh, when I decided to just go by a stage name. Yeah. And then I always thought people that like had that one name that they go by, like that stage mm-hmm. name, I always like thought that that was like, so weird. I was like, man, that is so kind of wacky that <laughs> you would – you'd kind of like this weird ego thing you're doing where you have this one name. I'm like, why would you do that? And then when I decided to go by my stage name was because, frankly, no one could say my name. Yeah. No one could spell my name. Yeah. No one would remember it. So I was like, well, this might, like, mess up my trajectory a little bit, so let me just make it a stage name. And then i had to realize that you know it's i had a lot of assumptions i was making about people that just have a stage name i had a lot of assumptions about people that were dressing up for the part Mm -hmm. and uh fortunately or unfortunately uh You kind of have to do the part. Yeah. You know what I mean? I mean, if you don't want to do the part, then you can be a plethora of other jobs. Right. That doesn't require you to be flashy, and it doesn't require you to be egocentric, whatever, but... Yeah, no, it is. No, it is. It is, and it's
2: exactly it's it's on the same it's on the same path as that. But see, for me, I don't think that's having an ego. I don't think that is not being yourself. Uh like you know, when I played, some of the things that I would wear to play are not some of the same things that I would wear as myself. And not because I was trying to have an ego or, or necessarily be anonymous, but because for me, and I feel like a lot of artists you know, might have the same sentiment. You know, playing music authentically is very intense. It's very intense because it's 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 you in a naked, vulnerable mm-hmm. way mm-hmm. that you don't really ever get to experience, in my opinion, in a lot of other things, in mm-hmm. a lot of other jobs. Um, and so, be able to not just play, but to write and put that into sound, I think, takes just an enormous amount of your inner consciousness Mm -hmm. that it's just hard to just lay out. And so a lot of people, uh, or at least I'll speak for myself, it was a way to kind of separate those things. So that way I could put myself in that place to be able to do what I needed to do in this time and job and separate that from, who i am as a person because i i i my music is is me but it also doesn't necessarily always reflect the things that i do in life good or bad because those are exclusively my own as myself yeah exactly you know and i think that's the narrative that people have sold musicians for such a long time and you know when it came to like that rock band right working with them you know, eventually we kind of agreed on something and I got them in all black. But what I did was I just took a lot these T-shirts and some of these cool like kind of just rock and roll trope clothes and I bleached them and I cut them up and I repinned them so that there would just be some texture or something there with like black safety pins. And so it looked really cool because it was like they're kind of almost ripping out of their clothing mm-hmm. and it kind of had that almost stop motion Tim Burton, we know where the dolls are kind of sewn up. It mm-hmm. kind of looked like that. And one of the arguments that they had, they're like, well, you know, people like Nirvana and all of that stuff. You know, they never had to, like, dress up. They just wore T-shirts. And I'm like, well, yeah, but that was 1989. Mm-hmm. In 1989, if you were a performing group and you were successful, you had an aesthetic. You yeah. had a look. You know, most of the R&B guys and the New Jack Swing guys were wearing suits. Mm-hmm. They were wearing Armani and Versace.
1: In the sense, Kurt doing that.
2: Was counterculture Ooh, right. because it was a new idea. Right. It was a new idea to be that, and so of course it was going to make, you know, the headlines and be landmark. But there mm. were tons of times that people have used wardrobe as things of power, you know, to pass on statements and make mm. movements. Shannito Connor in nineteen ninety when she shaved her head was a big deal because it was a uh, go against the. Uh, the crimes that she knew about, you know, a lot of the sexual allegations that people were talking about then. And it was her way to kind of go against that and go against the ideal of femininity to sell a product, Mm -hmm. you know, like when I was watching an early interview or a somewhat recent interview with Mariah Carey, she was talking about in the early days she wasn't allowed to wear anything other than these things because they were afraid that if she wore something outside of the look that she'd created for herself, that she might lose her audience, mm-hmm. you know? And it wasn't mm-hmm. until she renegotiated her contract later that she had the power to kind of wear what she well, wanted to wear.
1: Um, is this the same reason somebody like Billie Eilish is always looking like Bailey uh, regardless yeah. of where she's at she's got she, the same
2: exactly and I think that's the most amazing thing about her for me I'm not musically a fan of hers not that you know yeah. like she doesn't make bad it's just not something I would typically gravitate towards yeah. but as far as aesthetically I'm a huge fan because she's committed to kind of this uniform of herself right. and I think the fashion industry is paying the price for selling people the idea that wearing something regularly or having a set of things that you like regularly is a bad thing, and it means that you're not evolving and changing. By yeah. default, people that have known me 10 years know it. Since I was a baby, I love suits. Mm-hmm. The mm-hmm. earliest picture I have of myself is in 1985, and we were going to Easter-like church, and I'm wearing a pastel baby Miami Vice suit.
0: Mm-hmm. <laughs> and
2: ever since that day, I fell in love with suits, and it's always been my favorite thing. Do I dabble in other things? Do I wear skirts and crops and marching band jackets and, you know, whatever. I, I I really have genuinely very few limitations as it were, because I love exploring myself through the world of wardrobe, Mm -hmm. you know, because it's almost like you kind of get to play a bit of a character and in playing that character, you take away something from yourself as a lesson of, of something but I think that there's more power in doing something like she's doing than it isn't always changing because if you're always changing you never really get to understand and ask the who what where or why
0: mm-hmm.
2: and I think that's been a big problem in society as a whole is that we stopped bringing context to things and saying well okay what is it I don't like my neighborhood changing I can't stop it well that's an untrue statement There are powers in numbers, and not just in protesting and all that other stuff. But if people, let's say, were to, if I were to ask 10% of Houston, say, hey, support these three local businesses. If 50,000 people in a day, in a couple of days, showed up to these, it would change everything. Mm -hmm. You know, it would change everything. Businesses don't go out of business because they can't, you know, keep up or whatever the way that they keep up with rent is the fact that they have business and if they're busy they can fight back and when you're dealing with person to person in a way that i get to the service is just so different it's so much more personal Mm. you get exactly what you want you get it exactly what you want and and in that supporting some somebody in such a direct way it's like when i sleep at night it brings me a sense of peace because of the fact that i know that there are other people who are working like me that get to wake up and do what they love to do because i show up and i tell people to show up mm-hmm. and i wish that we as people would understand that and they're like well it's so much more expensive but i'm like but what's the cost of being in a situation maybe five or ten years from now where all we're left is with amazon and walmart and then they get to dictate well now we have all the water so now yeah. this bottled water that was a dollar is fifty dollars and if you don't have it then what is it you know and we're yeah. we're i'm not saying that that may happen tomorrow but we're definitely on that path because there's so many people that couldn't survive and right now we're in a beautiful time where they're hurting because everybody's hurting because people started realizing that you know it makes no sense to buy new stuff for the sake of buying new stuff and that comes at a price especially when they're reselling you an idea that's why everything that i buy is either resell it's local or it's thrifted dang everything you know, everything, every place I go to, every restaurant I go to, my dry cleaner and my gas station, the guy that fixes stuff, um, you know, it's all local stuff. And even for all the videos I'm done, that's probably one of the proudest things that I can say about myself is that even some of the biggest projects I've done have all been local Houston designers. And man, it, it's beautiful because People like Krungman get to be surprised yeah. that it's local people and, and people that normally would get overlooked for some popular brand or whatever um, get to have their moment too because they do do a good job.
0: Why did uh, Krungbin and Leon Bridges come to Houston?
2: Uh, well, they're from here. Uh, and I know that Laura Lee and Mark particularly have a lot of ties here.
0: Laura Lee is also from here? Mm -hmm. Okay, I wasn't wasn't aware of that.
2: And so, yeah, and so they have a lot of ties here. And so uh, it's kind of, I think, their way of saying thank you to a city that gave them a lot. Gotcha. You know, and so they kind of meet here so that it's kind of always a recurring thing that they get to share the place that they love and they got a lot of early start. Uh, back with the rest of the world and their audience
0: one thing that Armin and I talk a lot about is just how amazing Houston is yeah. as a city and he and I want to make and I mean I think we all do but just as we've been talking about he and I want to make Houston you know more of uh referred to more as new york or los angeles because we have all the same things if not better and we many, have better things many things yeah we have better a lot things. of better things so would you agree with us in the sense that houston is the best city if yes. not one of the best cities absolutely in the no
2: question no question no question i know that as far as in the avenues that I operate in because I know people that fly in from New York and LA and buy things from designers here mm-hmm. as a matter of fact up and until probably three or four years ago when I really started kind of absolutely making that my mantra uh, a lot of the designers that I ran into and that I would work with had never really sold to anybody in Houston because it was like Houston got sold this idea a long time ago that it's a chill place and you don't have to try. And any form of trying is caring and any form of caring means you're pretentious and any form of pretentious is anti-Houston. And that's not the case. You know, uh, clothing, clothing is what it is. And do some people use that to display something? Unfortunately, yes. But that's irrelevant because that's their choice and that's their narrative. And that doesn't define an entire narrative of. Of you know dress based on that, even though sometimes you'll find a common trope or you know trend, right?
0: That's interesting that you said they thought that caring meant you're pretentious. That's another thing that Arm and I have been dealing dealing with slash talking about recently. It's where it's like that is. I feel like that idea is still alive. Where when you care about something so much or you're trying hard at something. Whatever it is, music, creating, creating something, uh, that people will shoot you down and being like, "Oh, you're pretentious" or "You're even self-centered to an extent." And it's like, well, you have to be. You have to be to some extent. Yeah. You know, every us speaking for us in our hearts, we're we're not. It's not like we only care about ourselves. But in this day and age, you have to sort of play the game that has been set up. By the powers that be in order to get around the powers that be right and not conforming at all will most likely not get you anywhere right most likely
2: well it's like again why I watch a lot of things it's like look at Ray Charles's career right um, early days he was known for mimicking people And then um, he got with, and I'm going to hate myself for forgetting his name, but he gave him his first hit in 1953, Mess Around, which was one of his songs, right, from that label. And he started through that finding his own voice, which led him to mix gospel songs with R&B. You know, I Got a Woman um, and a lot of the early things, which led him to come down at the end of that decade in 1959 with What I Say. And so this is a time where, you know, religious censoring was heavy and so the fact that like have you ever see have you ever seen an LP with that song on it or have you ever seen that it's like always broken up in two parts Mm-mm. well it's broken up in two parts because if you flip it over the part that it comes down on is the ah, and it's the moans and that was super taboo for that time so the mm. way and also you couldn't put six minutes of a song on one record but um, but they split it up right there because it was this thing where it was like that censored and so that was the dirty side of the record and so here he is kind of not intending to be counterculture but just following his path finding his voice and doing that which led him to do one of my favorite albums of all time a few years later which is modern sounds in country and western and i think and i'm also saddened by how not more revered that album is because if you're thinking it's 1962 this is before really any civil rights freedoms you know Martin Luther King is having that conversation you know this is before JFK and he's taking the genre away from people that would normally you know tell him that he can't eat at the restaurant can't eat where they're going can't be here can't be there he's taking this genre making it his own and then reintroducing it in a way that's changed country forever You know, country before that, for the most part, were kind of more simple songs and simple stories. And he said, no, man, you guys are fucking up. Country is this moment. It's this whole narrative that you get to create. And he gave it strings and intros and harmonies and it's just such an incredible album thinking about that he couldn't even walk into the places on the front door he couldn't walk into the front door the places that he was going to play that album and a lot of the early artists were that way and that's why a lot of black artists have such a strong connection with europe and and france in particular because you know uh, disney louis all had to run there josephine baker because they wouldn't able they weren't able to get an audience and even if you think about it in the context of the Beatles, one of the greatest, biggest and most popular groups of all time, a lot of their early days and a lot of the songs and styles that they got from were from a lot of the black artists. Right. And they'll tell you that. They'll tell you that yeah. in all sorts of interviews and they package it in a way that people um, just appreciated at the right place in the right time.
0: Mm-hmm.
2: You know, and they came on as themselves. And the beautiful thing that I love about the Beatles, more so than their music, is that you just really got to watch the evolution of these four people from one end of the decade to the other. And they didn't start the way that they ended. And even Paul and Ringo are very much themselves. And it's a story of um, how important individualism is. Yeah, you know. And I think that we forget that. I think that as people the expectation to be different to be prolific in any way comes from being famous and it just comes from magnetism it just comes from you know sometimes they see somebody wear a color or have a hair color or a t-shirt that in that moment in that time speaks to me and just says they're, they're themselves <laughs> and it's beautiful and it reminds you to be yourself And that passes on. And that's why when you look at early pictures of, like, your grandparents and other people, you can see the people that are that way. You can spot them out. Um, And so I I just wish we followed that more. Mm -hmm. And in that vein, vein, you know, another thing I guess I wanted to bring up is that – you know, people always talk about this whole boomer thing and boomer thing. Oh, blah, yeah. blah, 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 blah. And I'm like, did you guys forget these are the same people that supported people like Iggy Pop and the Rolling Stones and David Bowie and gave them careers? Mm. Yeah. Huge careers. These are the same people that were those people. And so point. it's a shame that we're losing them, especially during COVID, but we're losing the opportunity to have these conversations because a lot of confusion comes from people translating something form the album. One of my favorite stories of all time, musically speaking, is a story of Stevie Wonder's InterVision album. Have you heard it?
1: What, I'm so sure. it has yeah. Golden So
2: Golden Lady, yeah. Higher Ground is on that album. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't You Worry About a Thing, He's Mr. Know-It-All. Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, so that's that album. So Stevie Wonder, you know, early 1973, had just come off of Talking Book, which has Superstition on it. Uh, uh, Music of My Mind, which is kind of what really introduced his whole... Um, kind of the classic period era, heavy roads, heavy on the synthesization, you know, with the Moogs and the uh, the ARP, and so he kind of introduced that. Gets us 1973, and I'm so sad. I was trying to find the story to just kind of brush myself up on it, but you can't even find it now. But people just talk about an accident they had in August of that year. He just released that album, and if you really understand that album and look at the album cover, it's like somebody having an introspective conversation with themselves. Mm-hmm. So the album gets released on his way on tour uh, to a show, uh, almost in a final destination sort of way. A truck carrying logs, jams on the brakes, swerves, logs start falling. One goes through the window, hits Stevie Wonder in the head.
0: Whoa. Uh, he's
2: rushed to the hospital. They didn't, couldn't even recognize him because his head is swollen five times the size i mean they were like he's gonna die some people even reported that he uh had died and he's laying there on his deathbed and his people occurred to him that stevie wonder is music and if anything might save him from this is music and so the second or third day they started you know they put him on like headphones and they play the reel of higher ground and the second day of doing that, he started tapping his finger to the syncopation of that song. Wow. And f- a few days later out of that, he woke up from his coma. And so it reintroduced him to why he really played music, wow. you know, and, and, and why that was. And the thing that I found more interest, most interesting is that I, what I couldn't find is that when he was creating that album, he felt like there was a sense of urgency for some reason. So that mm. album was like recorded and produced in some shocking amount of time, like a month. Month and a half. I mean, it was just ridiculous. All the songs, he locked himself in the room that had, you know, the, oh my God, Tonto, which was a crazy walled synthesizer. He wouldn't eat and he was just like, just frantic trying to make this album and did not understand why. And, and it was because he needed those songs to be able to get him through this part and needed to maybe accept i feel like this part of his journey to be able to move forward and so the album that follows that in 1974 is fulfilling this first finale which ends with a song called please don't go and that song is kind of his way of dealing with being in this coma and hearing people not being able to respond and that's why at the very end of it it's like don't leave stevie You know, and and that's what a lot of what that album is. And then he follows that up a few years later with uh, songs in the key of life again for that reason. But even when you talk about that album and talk to him after that album, it's like he had to do those albums to kind of get to this part of his life. And then it was like he got to have fun. But before he had fun, he released an album called Hotter Than July in 1980. And the most significant thing about that album that most people miss is that's the album that was used to push Martin Luther King as a holiday, which is a Stevie mm. Wonder thing. He was the person responsible for putting the bill in front of mm. Congress to do that. And so oh, wow. Happy Birthday that. is literally an ode to um, Martin Luther King and celebrating this day and why we should you know, make it a national celebration. And it's plain words, but the cool thing about that album, it was like, Stevie Wonder at that point was able to take the narratives of inequality in the 70s -hmm. and translate them into what would be the beginning of the 1980s, Mm -hmm. you know, and I find it so fascinating that he was already playing with synthesizers 10 years before the decade even realized that that's what they were going to do. Which is, again, one of the reasons why I never make fun of anybody who's doing something small or a small idea. Because you just really yeah, never know. And I look at all these stories and then I look at my life and the struggles that I have had to face and follow. And I realize that we're just so much bigger than ourselves. And the moments that everybody's out chasing to try to send them to something are so easy and so obvious. Mm-hmm. You just have to be yourself. Mm -hmm. um in a way that's honest and it doesn't mean that you have to be counterculture or controversial um in some way it's just the authenticity because it's just so lacking um and the artists that people remember the most are the most authentic um and that's just such a hard thing for people to swallow because there's so much noise that's why there's some things that i just won't watch
0: right and i feel like that I feel like when I talk about this too, and I'm not saying I have the answers, but I feel like today, especially everybody is um, worried about what am I going to do in life? What job am I going to get? Especially I feel like from my perspective, just graduating from college and everybody's getting the job that they were lined up to get. But many of the people that I know are not happy with that job because it's not necessarily what they want to do. And I'm just like, I really feel like for most people, to go along with what you're saying, you need to follow your heart Mm -hmm. and you need to be authentic for yourself. And then whatever that is, it'll just come into place as it should be. And I feel like you're a great example of that where you're an authentic person, you followed your heart, you're unapologetic about what you do and you're doing what you wanna do.
2: Yeah, but I had no choice to because it came from a place from, Mm. I was originally in the car business, right? To give you a little background. I was originally in the car business and I wasn't happy. And I remember the moment I almost, for the third time in my life, killed myself. And there's a song on YouTube that I think is still up, weirdly, years later. And it's me playing a song that I just written that was just kind of my farewell song. Mm. And I'm sitting in this high-rise in River Oaks. I had three cars. was making great money. had this ridiculous show dog that needed $50 haircuts every week. Oh, wow. And you would think I was a pillar of living life, but I was absolutely miserable and in that moment i realize that i'm like man all of this stuff without context just sucks Mm -hmm. chasing these people trying to keep up with these other people you know that we're doing life because there's always somebody that's going to make more money than you always you could be anybody there's always somebody that's gonna have more money have a bigger boat have more access oh man you're friends with the mayor i'm friends with the president you're friends with the president i'm friends with the last three presidents actually i was sitting at you know kennedy's cousins daughter's uncle's house in the hamptons last week there's always somebody and so once i realized that and accepted that i had to start over i had to accept the trauma of losing my dad at 13. i had to accept the trauma of you know, spending five years of my life being molested and sexually abused. I had to accept the craziness that was my mom and that led me to therapy and eventually that led me to this diagnosis. And even then, this diagnosis was hard, not because of having it, but because I thought for such a long time that all of these experiences, I was homeless for a while, you know, after my dad died, my mom just lost it, you know, because Mm. he died Thanksgiving of 1998. And so... Uh, my mom was one of those women that would just never let man settle down. Like, she just was like, no way. I'm not going to be those people stuck in a situation where I'm after some man or I'm doing all these crazy things. And, of course, my dad being the sly guy was that guy, you know. And so when he passed away, we found out they had two other families and had brothers and sisters that I didn't even know about that nobody knew about. Oh, wow. um, and they were significantly older. I mean, they were like – they're in their 40s and 50s now, and I'm in my 30s. Uh-huh. And so – this all comes to light and then she loses the woman who raised her three weeks later to the oh, day oh, wow. and she just shut down yeah she just shut down and she couldn't function she couldn't pay bills she couldn't work um and so that led me us uh, to be living in my camaro you know for a while and we ended up in a shelter Star hope and the i think most devastating thing about that situation wasn't ending up in the shelter weirdly it was the fact that for the first time in my life I realized that people were treated poorly based on their circumstances Mm -hmm. I never experienced that no matter what I'd been through people always just had a level of respect but the way that they treat you in those scenarios is they treat you like animals man it works because sometimes I don't know pets right now that get treated that badly and the <laughs> right. way that they talk down to you and the rules that are all condescending and that whole time we were there for probably about a year and a half i got to see another part of society that i just had never been exposed to wow and i didn't grow up in a fancy neighborhood or anything but it was just normal you know and i I, at that moment, I started kind of going down a bad road with some of the kids that were there and they'd go to like the subway and like steal things and whatever. And I could never bring myself to do that because I just had too much of a conscience. But I realized in that time that I was there that this is the path that people separate what you do for the rest of your life. And mm-hmm. I was like, how unfair it is for these kids. They don't have the opportunity. They didn't grow up with such a strong willed mother or or set of scenarios, you know, or sense of self that I've always had since I was a kid um, to kind of say there's something bigger than what you're doing right now and it's just not worth you getting yourself in trouble because then it's going to inhibit you from being able to do those things later. And I realized that that was that moment. And for some reason, I recognized it as a 15-year-old and it didn't necessarily... I wish it led me to end up where I am now directly, but it just took a path of me selling cars and being in this business and really not liking it, not because I'm not a car guy, which I am, but because it just – that's a very unfortunately cloak and veil sort of business. And so any transparency in it people are skeptical about because it's just unheard of. And I hated that. I hated having to talk people into things. I hated Mm -hmm. the idea of selling things to people. And so here I was you know, at that moment looking over this window being like, man, I fought for this industry. I fought to be here and I'm unhappy. And in that, I took a trip to Austin a year later because I had gone through some legal stuff, um, dealing with the car business and shutting down and being an idiot and that. And I accidentally ended up styling this music video for a big band in Austin called Sondere. And it was 80s themed. And I happened to coincidentally be really into the 80s at that time. Not that I'm not now. I have to throw that out there because the people that know me are like, Omar, you are very 1980s. So. <laughs> but I was more so then than I am now. And I saw this video and all the way home, I realized that everything that I'd ever seen, somebody was behind the scenes being like okay she needs to look like a mom this or what moms in this demographic in this scenario in this part of the country at this time look like
1: Mm -hmm.
2: and i was like i love that i love the psychology behind fashion and style more than i like the garments Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what they can do for people but i say all that because it just again it's it's who i am right now as a person Um, All of those moments, all of those narratives, all of those situations, um, the good or the bad, it's just part of what's made me myself. And so I've taken those things and I was blessed to have the gift of music and be able to write them in songs and, and put them out there, which... You know not having played in a while I didn't realize how therapeutic that was mm. um, Because that's how I finally Dealed with my dad dying I was angry about it I was angry that he lied to my mom I was angry that uh, He deceived me I was angry that he left early And it was like every choice from that moment To the moment I just said Okay I can't be a victim of this Situation anymore um, Just led to a lot of like Really Tumultuous things. You know, it was just yeah. ridiculous.
0: For people who, mm, like, let's go with the uh, the BPD. Uh, borderline personalities. Yeah. Oh, I know BPD and I'm like thinking borderline. You bi- I really think it's bipolar. <laughs> um, <laughs> Which I is
2: not a bad thing. Not a bad thing. It's not what I have.
0: No. Um. What would you say to people today, especially right now in this current time, who... Are going through a lot of trauma or like the trauma of the world is affecting them because it seems like you've dealt with trauma it it appears from our perspective very well and what would you say to people currently who maybe don't know what to do or feel like they don't they can't do anything Mm
1: -hmm. and then on top of that if you can elaborate what are like some of the things we need to know about BPD, maybe? Like, if you don't know yeah, much yeah. about it?
2: Um, I'll answer that question first because it's a little easier to answer and get into your question. Okay. So the things that you should know is that you have to have a lot of patience with people with BPD because, you know, think about something that just hurt your heart to just a breakup somebody dying that just i mean will bring you to tears to this day mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and imagine you feeling that way because somebody doesn't text you back or because something mm-hmm. doesn't work out you know or somebody goes to you and you like them and you're going on this path of not understanding why um i think you just have to have a lot of patience because i feel that way about a lot of things that make no sense to feel that way about mm-hmm you know, okay. um, and a lot of people assume that you know somebody blowing up or being upset about something is them um, just being crazy. Um, but it's just unfortunately that's part of BPD is that you feel the intensity of something like that, and mm-hmm. you feel the extremity of both of those things. Mm. Um, which is why people with BPD have a hard time maintaining relationships and friendships. You know, because mm. everything is love or hate and juggle and hide, and so you're taught and having to get taught the shades of gray, right? Yeah. The second thing is that you have to be very direct and very calm in talking to somebody with BPD. You know, if they're upset. Uh, you know, if I'm upset or I do something wrong, which I definitely do or say something wrong or say something that offends somebody, the worst thing that you can do is just not talk to me about it. If you go, hey, I didn't like the joke you made, you know, about something, you know, it's just in that context, just didn't feel appropriate. And I was offended by it. I'm not upset, but I just wish you wouldn't do that. I understand that much better than you either not talking to me or yelling me at me about it because mm-hmm. in that moment I can kind of start doing a self-check and create a narrative that does a self-check to make sure that I am being okay in those scenarios mm-hmm. does that make sense yeah, yeah. Um, I think those are probably the two biggest things and there are definitely some there's a woman called I think it's Katie Morton on YouTube who has a whole thing about BPD that's really really informative and really helpful so if you're like you know with somebody who has it or whatever um it would be a really good watch because it just taught me a lot about um, myself and unfortunately of all the things um, which was the hardest thing to accept about it honestly is that there's no medication for it it's not like if you have something else that they can give you a pill and then you're like ah you're
0: all and do you think that is that because you feel like it really is a product of life experience oh absolutely it's a product of
2: it's a product of me having a mom that in the same vein of giving me a hug she would you know, beat the shit out of me because she was feeling some emotional intensity or she'd overreact to things or just do really crazy and rash things and never having a sense of peace and sense of self um, and then I was, you know, really bullied because I was six foot at like eight or nine years old. I mean, I was a big kid.
1: You got uh, bullied for being taller than everyone? Yeah,
2: absolutely. Cause I mean, you gotta think this is the nineties and here I am, I'm this giant kid. I'm the biggest person, tallest person in school. Oh. And I dress more like Carrollton Banks than I did Will Smith. Mm-hmm. And so like a lot of people that talk about like with the black lives matter and all this other stuff and whatever, you know, I experienced more bullying from people of color than I ever have anybody that wasn't a person of color. Oh, wow. Because I wasn't part of the uh, – why do you wear your pants like that? Why do you talk like that? Why are you trying to be white? Why are you – whatever. Uh, I'm like, this is the way that I got taught English. I'm not trying to be anything. This is yeah. who I am. And so I thought that was just – again, looking at this whole situation now, I thought that was just such an irony that I'm like, you know, I've gotten more you know shade and shit from – other people of color than than not. Or I get the thing, it's always in passive ways sometimes nowadays. Oh, man, where are you from? You know, or what's your accent? You know? Right. Um... It's always little ways or if I'm in a different group of people, right, like in downtown or something and everybody will go like, oh, hey, man, nice to meet you. And they shake your hand. Oh, hey, man, nice to meet you. And they shake your hand and they get to me. Oh, man, what's going on, man? Right. And I'm like, oh, OK, yeah, 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 yeah. You know, or they go like, oh, yeah, you know what I mean? And I'm just like, uh, <laughs> I really I don't. <laughs> um, yeah. And again, it's because nobody ever stops to have those conversations and so i've actually had real conversations with people candidly about you know my perception of my experience i guess in, in america um right now so, so how, do you,
1: how do you how do you battle with that Let, let's say you're talking to somebody let's say who's like in their 20s early 20s and they're at a stage in, of your life that you already went through you have already tackled that stage what do you what do you tell them what do you tell these young people
2: the thing that has helped me be me and deal with the trauma and all the things that I've experienced, even things that I haven't talked about, is being able to always have a baseline of myself to go back to. Mm. I love music, unapologetically. Yeah. I will sit sometimes on a Sunday and put on records, not talk to anybody, and just digest albums play the same record over and over again, play a song two or three times, and just try to listen to the bass line, just try to listen to the harmonics. Um, But that's core me. I love style. I love style. I love watching shows that are highly styled. Um, I love those things. And um, I like the psychology of people. Mm -hmm. And I like knowing about them, And so those things are things that have helped me be okay. And other times because I can look to those things and get something, some sense of balance and peace and understanding through digesting an album, you know, that I happen to gravitate towards or finding a new album that I gravitate towards. I think what makes it hard is that when you don't have that, it's when you get lost because somebody not liking you for being you is a lot easier to accept than somebody not liking you for pretending to be somebody else which Mm. hurts more because you're a character and they don't like this character and you created this character to be liked and then Mm. it feels like there's two parts of you that they don't like and and then also you feel that you were dishonest with yourself and now you're paying a price and that inner conscious that inner child is hurt it's hurt because you're denying me be being me And you're getting rejected for it.
1: So I'm understanding a lot of things about that. Like there's so many angles with that. A lot of like I feel like part of it is like you can't be afraid of 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 pursuing something or loving something or being dedicated to something in order to really let that uh, uniqueness your uniqueness to become who you are you also need to be a little bit fearless cuz let's say if you weren't fearless about design and fashion and stage design if you if you had any hesitation about that being for you or if you had doubts about your own performance in that uh, you would never let that come into your life and then that could never give you that healing that you could get from that you know right
2: yeah but that's because i found strength in the stories of being like okay if a blind Ray Charles could get on a bus and go half across the country in a time where he could have gotten killed at any point for any right. reason and not know his murderer. Yeah. Then I have no fucking excuse for getting up and getting in a comfortable car with a phone and going doing something as simple as uh, coming here and talking with you guys. I just have yeah. I have no excuse. And and there's just so many people that um, people don't know, especially people in the GLBTQ community. You know, like Brian Epstein, who is responsible for a lot of the success the Beatles had in early days. He was a gay man. And uh, Duke Ellington, you know, his longtime partner. Yeah. Um, you know, Billy Stray. Strayhorn. Strayhorn. Strayhorn, you know. Um, Lotus Blossom was one of my favorite songs. You know, it's like they were and they, they, they couldn't even be themselves. Um, and there's so many people I know that I follow, designers and artists. And I'm like, man, for them, I'm like, I feel like I have to, if not me, who else, you know? Um, Because it just seems like in vain if they died and I don't get to call myself a gay man and live as myself. And so that's why I use those stories to just remember that we're all human and that humanity is what makes us amazing. And passing that on is what makes a social conscious of life.
0: And mm-hmm. you, There's a potential that you may kind of repeat with what I'm about to ask, but I feel like it's just a good segue. What is your opinion about why we are alive as humans and what it means to be alive slash the nature of reality?
2: I think that life is kind of like a vibration of a consciousness, right? And I think that... In some ways, part of me believes that we keep kind of in different times repeating the same set of scenarios, almost like a exercise because we keep fucking it up. Because it's like if you listen to other cultures or you listen to 100 years ago, we're still having the same conversations and we're still in the same prisons and we're still making a different set of mistakes that are manipulated by a different set of things. Um, I think we're all here to inspire each other and inspire the future so that humanity as a whole goes on. Um, the things that you do right now, uh, it could be something as simple as a video of you playing a song that 10 people hear now, but 50 years from now, somebody might resonate with that song, uh, or at that moment or this thing that you wore and it could inspire a whole other thing. And the more authentic you are, and the more that you, experience life and enjoy the experience of life, I think the more fulfillment that you find, which is another thing that has helped me. I enjoy I have a car I like. I get to wear the clothes I, I like. I get to hang out and support the people that I love and appreciate. and that's something that people think that is exclusive to wealthy people but it's really just exclusive to the people that are smart enough to figure that out. Um, because that's the difference between anybody that's really wealthy and everybody else, per se, is not just money. Um, it's that they get to curate the things that they like. If they wanted a blue room that is this blue, they just call somebody and they get that blue room. Um, You know uh, there's very few things that I think people would really care about that are exclusive to people with a lot of money and I think the more that you accept that and validate that part of yourself and stop looking to the internet for answers, stop looking to social media for answers, stop trying to have conversations via text. Uh, I think if people just had more face to face conversations, Mm -hmm. that would change a lot of things because it's like when you're talking to somebody and you're reading their body language and affect, which is a big part of communication. Uh, you really can have a conversation that you gain a lot from. I travel in a lot of different circles. I've hung out with furries. I've hung out with people in the Burning Man community. I've hung out with people that are multi millionaires. I've hung out with all sorts of people because there's something to learn from everybody.
1: How's my furry community right now? Doing? How are they doing?
2: Right I, I haven't gotten to talk to a lot of people but a couple of friends that I'm still friends with there, you know, they're as any other smaller culture and community, man, they're changing and hurting and the older people that have been in it longer like looking at the younger people like what are you guys doing man why are you being so weird (laughs) 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 you know it's like it's not that weird it just be yourself and um and it's just about accepting that, man. I just had to come to a level of, of acceptance of myself. I'm a triple minority. Come on, I'm black, gay, and Latino with a Muslim name, and I'm a giant black dude who's eccentric. Like, I mean, if there wasn't a poster child of somebody getting the shit beaten out of him in Alabama, man, if it's not me, I dare you to bring Aww. up anybody else. And 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 that courage of having to exist in spaces that i would normally not be in that's why i'm not afraid to go places sometimes because you know i went to a restaurant in the heights which i tend to not do these days and uh, because i have an aversion or i call it an allergy to like white walls and edison bulbs because i'm just like oh my god oh my god i'm so over it and Mm -hmm. i went to this restaurant and it almost felt like a wild wild west moment where everybody's like Oh, shit. And everybody's, like, looking at me, and I'm like... Do you want to say the restaurant? Uh, no. <laughs> but uh, I was <laughs> like, you know, and I was like, what is going on? I'm with my friend, and we sat down, and she's kind of like, what's going on? I was like, why is everybody looking at me odd? And I was like, oh, I'm the only person of color here. Oh. I was like, ah, that makes sense. So I was like, okay. They were like, well, who is this Negro, and why is he in this restaurant? Not that it's not allowed, but they are like, hmm...
1: You're on the wave. Why are
2: you on the wave? Um, And so I have to sometimes (laughs) represent a whole culture of people on my own and be aware of that.
0: Um, And you do it well. And I feel like that's one reason that Armin and I have so much respect for you you. and like so much appreciation for you is because you just do everything unapologetically and are so authentic about it. I have no choice. Right, and you have no choice. <laughs>
2: this is what you get. You know, I wish I could pretend to be and somebody else because then I'd be straight and white. But
0: you're setting an example for everybody. I'm trying my as best. as to like what we should all be living like. So
2: I'm trying my best. I am not perfect. I don't want anybody to think I've definitely made my fair share of ugly mistakes. But I have to accept those, and I have to um, be better about. Checking myself and taking those experiences and doing something positive. And I guess another thing I forgot to mention that helps me is that in supporting you guys and supporting like music and supporting these small businesses, I get a little something that money doesn't buy. Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. in knowing that I am helping keeping my community alive it gives me a sense of peace and stability because I know that if I help these businesses fight hard enough that they can stay around to be these quirky amazing places that they are and I don't lose a sense of myself in losing these memories and neighborhoods.
1: Can we close with this very important question? Hmm. What does the Houston Ensemble need to do Wardrobe wise,
2: good point. <laughs> Are you sure you want me
1: now? No. Sure. <laughs> you sure? Oh, you sure you sure. want the hands
2: the sun? You know.
1: It's okay, it's gonna get intense. let go. Um,
2: lay I it think out. I'll, I'll lay it <laughs> off for every, I'll lay it off for all the bands in Houston. <laughs> I think you need to accept that your audience, as much as you want to put the faith that they understand all these amazing diminished chords and these references to rock modern off and beautiful things that you're doing, they don't understand that. They hear it. They can associate it with things, but people were taught to be very visual, and so you just have to give them an all-encompassing experience, so that way the sounds match what they're seeing, and they can kind of set the mindset. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um. So I think if you just, it could be as simple as just coordinating a color or a style. Um. Like, hey, we're gonna do all black. You know, or wear these. Three colors, Mm -hmm. everybody, black, white, gray, Um, you know, black, white, red, whatever. I think if you just do that, and whenever you go on stage, dress with the intention of like, this is my life. This is what I want to do forever, this is my job. Mm -hmm. And I'm here to work, and I'm here to look like I'm gonna get paid, that's what's gonna come to you. It's the difference between Houston and Austin. I would dare challenge any Austin band To any Houston band. And me speaking. Maybe I have a bias. Because I've lived here longer. But I feel like Houston has more talent. But Austin has a package. Because when you see those guys go on stage. They look like a freaking band. And they look like they're there to get paid.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
2: There's no question. They look like a band. They could all be wearing denim jackets. Or denim could be the kind of overarching theme. Or they might just have simple suits with ties. Mm -hmm. But they look like one cohesive group. Or individually their style is so... Ever present that you're like okay these are five individual people collectively making up mm. this band yeah uh, I think if you just did that it would change a lot of your audience and it would yeah. change a lot of even how you see yourself because in accepting that and finding the strength in that it's kind of like you level up
1: so yeah we don't need to be kiss. But we need, th- <laughs> we need something. We need well, something. We need a look. We need a style. you need
2: to find your identity through yeah. your music, whatever that is. Yeah, yeah. And so if you're gravitating towards something, then I think you just need to pursue that. And I mm. think you just need to all be conscious about being what is a Houston ensemble, aesthetically mm. speaking, mm-hmm. and how do we properly reflect that. So that if that just means that you guys always wear turtlenecks in different colors, You know, then cool. maybe that's what that
1: means. I'm Thank thinking you. studs and spikes. I'm thinking metal. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> I mean,
2: if that's you, then it's gonna be. But if you're, you know, if you're trying
0: to be, we gotta something, go then no. We gotta go in here. Yeah, we'll figure it out. Yeah,
2: I wish I was a more direct and specific. When answer. we
0: have the money, uh, that's you're all on board. I'm, that's all an excuse man. <laughs> <laughs> I, no, no, no. I I'm saying we're gonna get you on board to pay you. To style us.
2: Hey, you know what? Sometimes I do things for labor of love. (laughs) I love Houston music and I want you guys to do well. And
0: this is an example of that. We just want to say thank you so much. Absolutely. Thank you for letting me come and ramble my So cool of you to be here. (laughs) You're just adding to everything that's cool that we hope to do. So again, for everybody who's watching Houston Ensemble, episode 16 with Omar Lissandro, check him out. Check him out on the social media. We'll uh, attach his stuff to it. And uh, we'll see you next time for the next one. Thank
1: you so much. Cheers.